My friends, it is useless to try to teach what you do not know. And if I may speak with some irony, it's even worse to be ignorant of your ignorance. Genesis, some people tell us, needs no explanation. Its topics are too simple. The birth of the world, the origin of the human race, the division of the earth, the confusion of tongues, and the descent of the Hebrews into Egypt? Exodus, no doubt, is equally plain, containing as it does merely an account of the ten plagues, the Decalogue, and countless mysterious divine laws. The meaning of Leviticus is, of course, self-evident. Although every sacrifice that it describes, no, actually, Every word that it contains, the description of Aaron's vestments, and all the regulations connected with the Levites, are symbols of heavenly things. The book of Numbers, too, are not its figures, and Balaam's prophecy, and the 42 camping places in the wilderness, all great mysteries? Deuteronomy also, that is, the second law, or the foreshadowing of the law of the gospel, does it not, while exhibiting the things we knew before, put old truths in a new light? These are the five words of the Pentateuch, which St. Paul says he would rather speak to the church. Then, as for Job, that pattern of patience, what mysteries are not contained in his discourses? Beginning in prose, the book soon glides into verse and at the end once more reverts to prose. By the way in which it lays down propositions, assumes postulates, adduces proofs, and draws inferences, it illustrates all the laws of logic. Single words occurring in the book are full of meaning. To say nothing of other topics, it prophesies the resurrection of men's bodies at once with more clearness and with more caution than anyone has ever shown. I know, Job says, that my Redeemer lives, and I shall be clothed again with my skin, and in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another this, my hope, is stored up in my own bosom. I will pass on to Joshua, the son of Nun, a type of the Lord in both name and deed, who crossed over the Jordan, subdued hostile kingdoms, divided the land among the conquering people, and who in every city, village, mountain, river, hill torrent, and boundary which he dealt with, marked out the spiritual realms of the heavenly Jerusalem, that is, of the church. In the book of Judges, every one of the popular leaders is a type. Ruth of Moab fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. Send a lamb, O Lord, as ruler of the land, from the rock of the wilderness to the mount of the daughter Zion. Under the figures of Eli's death, and the slaying of Saul, Samuel shows the abolition of the old law. 
Again, in Zadok and in David, he bears witness to the mysteries of the new priesthood and of the new royalty. The third and fourth books of kings, called in Hebrew Malachim, give the history of the kingdom of Judah from Solomon to Jeconiah, and of that of Israel from Jeroboam the son of Nabat to Hoshea, who was carried away into Assyria. If you look only at the narrative, the words are simple enough. But if you look beneath the surface at the hidden meaning of it, you find a description of the small numbers of the church and of the wars which the heretics wage against it. The twelve prophets, whose writings are compressed within the narrow limits of a single volume, have typological meanings far different from their literal ones. Hosea speaks many times of Ephraim, of Samaria, of Joseph, of Jezreel, of a wife who is a prostitute and of children of prostitutes, of an adulteress shut up within the chamber of her husband, sitting for a long time as a widow and in the garb of mourning, awaiting the time when her husband will return to her. Joel, the son of Pethuel, describes the land of the twelve tribes as spoiled and devastated by the palmer worm, the canker worm, the locust, and the blight. He predicts that after the overthrow of the former people, the Holy Spirit shall be poured out upon God's servants and handmaids. This is the same spirit which was to be poured out in the upper chamber at Zion upon 120 believers. These believers, rising by steady and regular gradations from 1 to 15, form the steps to which there is a mystical allusion in the psalm of degrees. Amos, although he is only a herdman from the country, a gatherer of sycamore fruit, cannot be explained in a few words. For who can adequately speak of the three sins and the four of Damascus, of Gaza, of Tyre, of Edomia, of Moab, of the children of Ammon, and in the seventh and eighth place of Judah and of Israel. He speaks to the fat cattle that are in the mountain of Samaria and bears witness that the great house and the little house shall fall. He sees now the maker of the grasshopper, now the Lord, standing upon a wall made of diamonds. Then he reveals a basket of apples that brings doom to the sinners and a famine upon the earth. Not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Obadiah, whose name means the servant of God, thunders against Edom red with blood and against the creature born of earth. He smites him with the spear of the spirit because of his continual rivalry with his brother Jacob. Jonah, fairest of doves, whose shipwreck shows in a figure the passion of the Lord, recalls the world to penitence and while he preaches to Nineveh, announces salvation to all the heathens. Micah, the Merashtite, a joint heir with Christ, announces the spoiling of the daughter of the robber and lays siege against her because she has smitten the jawbone of the judge of Israel. Nahum, the consoler of the world, rebukes the bloody city and when it is overthrown cries, Behold, 
Upon the mountains the feet of him that brings good tidings. Habakkuk, like a strong and unyielding wrestler, stands upon his watch and sets his foot upon the tower, that he may contemplate Christ upon the cross and say, His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise, and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Zephaniah, that is, the bodyguard and knower of the secrets of the Lord, hears a cry from the fish gate, and a howling from the second, and a great crashing from the hills. He proclaims, howling to the inhabitants of the mortar, for all the people of Canaan are undone. All they that were laden with silver are cut off. Haggai, that is, he who is glad or joyful, who has sown in tears to reap in joy, is occupied with the rebuilding of the temple. He represents the Lord, the Father, as he says, In a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and he who is desired of all nations shall come. Zechariah, he that is mindful of his Lord, gives us many prophecies. He sees Jesus clothed with filthy garments, a stone with seven eyes, a candlestick all of gold with lamps as many as the eyes, and two olive trees on the right side of the bowl and on the left. After he has described the horses red, black, white, and grizzled, and the cutting off of the chariot from Ephraim and of the horse from Jerusalem. He goes on to prophecy and predict a king who shall be a poor man and who shall sit upon the colt, the foal of a donkey. Malachi, the last of all the prophets, speaks openly of the rejection of Israel and the calling of the nations. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand, for from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name is great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense is offered unto my name a pure offering. As for Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, who can fully understand or adequately explain them? The first of them seems to compose not a prophecy but a gospel. The second speaks of a rod of an almond tree and of the seething pot with its face toward the north and of a leopard which has changed its spots. He also goes four times through the alphabet in different meters. The beginning and end of Ezekiel, the third of the four, are so obscure that, like the beginning of Genesis, they are not studied by the Hebrews until they are 30 years old. Daniel the fourth and last of the prophets, having knowledge of the times and being interested in the whole world, in clear language proclaims the stone cut out of the mountain without hands that overthrows all kingdoms. David, who is our Simonides, Pindar and Alcaeus, our Horus, our Catullus and our Serenus, all in one sings of Christ to his lyre. And on a sultry with ten strings, calls him from the lower world to rise again. 
Solomon, a lover of peace and of the Lord, corrects morals, teaches nature, unites Christ and the church, and sings a sweet marriage song to celebrate that holy bridal. Esther, a type of the church, frees her people from danger, and after having slain Haman, whose name means iniquity, hands down to posterity a memorable day and a great feast. The book of things omitted or epitome of the old dispensation is of such importance and value that without it, anyone who should claim to himself a knowledge of the scriptures would make himself a laughingstock in his own eyes. Every name used in it, even the order of the words, serves to throw light on narratives passed over in the book of Kings and upon questions suggested by the gospel. Ezra and Nehemiah, that is, the Lord's helper and his consoler, are united in a single book. They restore the temple and build up the walls of the city. In their pages, we see the throng of the Israelites returning to their native land. We read of priests and Levites, of Israel proper and of proselytes. And we're even told the several families to which the task of building the walls and towers was assigned. These references convey one meaning upon the surface, but another meaning below it. You see how carried away by my love of the scriptures I've gone on too long, and yet I'm still not finished with what I have to convey. We have heard only what we ought to know and to desire, so that we too may be able to say with the psalmist, My soul breaks out with the fervent desire that it always has for your judgments. But the words of Socrates about himself, The only thing I know is that I know nothing, are true in our case also. The New Testament I will briefly deal with. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Lord's team of four, the true cherubim, or store of knowledge. With them, the whole body is full of eyes. They glitter as sparks. They run and return like lightning. Their feet are straight feet, and lifted up their backs are also winged, ready to fly in all directions. They hold each other each by each and are interwoven one with another. Like wheels within wheels, they roll along and go wherever the breath of the Holy Spirit wafts them. The Apostle Paul writes to seven churches. He instructs Timothy and Titus. He intercedes with Philemon for his runaway slave. Of him, I think it better to say nothing than to speak inadequately. The Acts of the Apostles seem to relate a mere narrative description of the early days of the church. But once we realize that their author is Luke the physician whose praise is in the gospel. We see that all his words are medicine for the sick soul. The apostles James, Peter, John, and Jude have published seven epistles at once spiritual and to the point, short and long, short in words but lengthy in substance. There are few indeed who do not find themselves in the dark when they read them. The Apocalypse of John has as many mysteries as words. In saying this, I have said less than the book deserves. All praise of it is inadequate. Manifold meanings lie hidden in its every word. I beg of you, 
my dear friends, to live among these books, to meditate upon them, to know nothing else, to seek nothing else. Doesn't that sort of life seem to you a foretaste of heaven here on earth? Do not let the simplicity of the scripture or the poorness of its vocabulary offend you. These characteristics are due either to the faults of translators or else to deliberate purpose. For in this way, it is better fitted for the instruction of an uneducated congregation. An educated person can take one meaning from a sentence and an uneducated person can take quite another meaning from the very same sentence. I am not so dull or arrogant so as to claim that I myself know it or that I can pluck upon the earth the fruit which has its roots in heaven. But I confess that I would like to do so. I put myself before the man who sits idle, and while I do not claim to be a master, I readily pledge myself to be a fellow student. Everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. Let us learn here on earth the knowledge which will continue with us in heaven. <laughs>